You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. If you turn your Bible to Luke chapter 11, we'll be back in John in February, February the 5th, but we're making our way through this this prayer that I call Kingdom Prayer, Luke chapter 11. Thank you, Adam, orchestra choir, for faithfully serving us and leading us in worship this morning through song, preparing us for the worship of the preaching of the Word of God. May we be found faithful stewards of that task this morning. I want to thank you all for allowing us, a team of 11, to go to East Africa this week, this past week. It was a very fruitful um, trip for us. We were working primarily uh, with missionaries who do Bible translation. And they need encouragement because, as you know, uh, the, the task is arduous. It, is, it, is, uh, it requires a lot of time of isolation. They, they, they know the Greek and the Hebrew, and they're, they're learning these tribal languages that have never been translated. The uh, Bible's never been translated into their language so they're, they're learning all of that. We, we had one lady there who I asked her, what do you do? She said, I'm writing a dictionary, um, which, which was remarkable, writing a dictionary in one of those languages. And, and so Kevin and Adam and I uh, led a retreat for the missionaries. And then we had a, a team of eight uh, who ministered to their children through the week. And so all of them have their own unique struggles. And we're going to be speaking more about that later. But just wanted to tell you right now, thank you uh, for allowing us to, to, to be a part of that. I think it was deeply encouraging, certainly for us, but also for the missionaries and their families. Well, in Luke chapter 11, we're only going to look at a couple of lines of that prayer this morning. We've already looked at one line. But if you would look with me in Luke 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So we learned last time that this prayer is a, this kind of prayer uh, is a learned prayer. It's a taught prayer. Um, As Jesus taught his disciples, and he, or John taught his disciples, and he said to them, when you pray, say this, Father. So again, there we learned that it's a family prayer. It's for those who can call him Father by adopting grace in Jesus. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Let's pray. Father, as we begin prayer week... We pray that this passage would be a means of teaching us what it means to pray more fervently. We pray, Lord, that this word today would be a means of grace for every person here. Meet us at our need, Lord. There are some of us here who need encouragement to pray. Some of us who are discouraged in our prayer lives. Some of us aren't even interested in prayer. Lord, we just pray today. Meet us where we are. By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, next week, January the 24th, will be the 58th anniversary of the death of the former Prime Minister of Britain, Winston Churchill. Virtually any historian will tell you he was the central figure who saved Western civilization from the clutches of Hitler and his evil regime. Upon his death, Queen Elizabeth II wrote a letter to to Lady Churchill. And here's what she said. The whole world is the poorer by the loss of his of his many-sided genius, while the survival of this country and the sister nations of the commonwealth in the face of the greatest danger that has ever threatened them will be a perpetual memorial to his leadership, his vision, and his indomitable courage. I've been listening to a biography about Winston Churchill, a very substantive, important biography by Andrew Roberts. And one of the central themes of this biography is Churchill's lifelong conviction that the greatest of all empires, the greatest of all kingdoms, was the British Empire. He was convinced of the virtue and the nobility of the British Empire. He was essentially convinced, after having been taught that his whole life, when he went to India at the age of 21. India had been colonized by the British Empire. And what he saw astounded him. He saw the benefits of British rule there in India. The railways, the irrigation projects, Mass education, newspapers, bridges, roads, aqueducts, universities, rules of law, hospitals, military protection granted by the British Navy and the British Army, the abolition of wicked traditional practices like the burning of widows. He saw the benefits of the English language there in India. And this confirmed for Churchill what he had always believed his entire life, what he had been taught. And it was this, Britain was worth living and dying for. And Churchill, without wavering, unflinchingly did that his entire life. He gave his life away for the British Empire. Oftentimes, even at personal, deep personal loss and cost. Now, if Churchill could have such a commitment to the British Empire, the the British Kingdom, if you will, with all of its imperfections, how much more so should we, the children of the infinitely perfect and glorious kingdom and empire, give our lives away for that kingdom. The fact is, as Kevin DeYoung has quipped, most of us, if we are truly being honest with the person in the mirror, we live our lives 
too serious about casual things and too casual about serious things and ultimate things and eternal things. Just go to an SEC ball game sometime. Now, how do you break this cycle? How do you get out of this natural bent where we tend to live too seriously for casual things? It's insane to live your way, this way, given the purpose for which God created you as his image bearers. It's insane to live this way given the reality of a coming eternity. Well, I think a good starting point to get out of that cycle is this kingdom prayer in Luke 11. Now, this brings us to the first petition of this prayer. We're only going to look at the first and second petition this morning. We're going to look at the third petition tonight. We'll begin prayer week tonight, but we will have a, a message not as long as normal. But we will look at the third petition of this prayer tonight. But this morning, we're going to look at the first and second petition. Uh, we've seen that kingdom prayer is a taught prayer. We've seen it's a family prayer. And now, we see in the first petition of this prayer that kingdom prayer is a jealous prayer. It's a jealous prayer. Look with me in verse 2. When you pray, say, Father... Hallowed be your name. So the first petition in this prayer is that God's name, the Father's name, be hallowed. Now, for a lot of people, the word hallowed may sound a bit spooky. After all, a lot of times, the only time you hear that word is on October the 31st. Halloween. Uh, now, even though it, it's an archaic word, there's been no word in English to replace it. There's no better word. And so it's important that we understand what this word hallowed really means. Uh, there's two aspects to this word, uh, but what the word means is to, to literally to consider, to recognize as holy, even to make holy. You can't make God's name holy, uh, but you can be an agent by which it is seen as holy, as set apart. But there's two aspects to this petition. First of all, it's an expression of fact. So when you pray, hallowed be your name, you are essentially saying, Father, your name indeed is hallowed. It's a form of worship. Your name is hallowed. It's the only thing that's hallowed in this broken world. Your name is hallowed. So it's a statement of fact. But secondly, it's a longing for fulfillment. It's a longing for fulfillment. Oh, that your name would be hallowed. If you're like me, Let's be honest here. With regard to this second aspect, in recognizing 
your own puny jealousy for God's name to be hallowed. This is a prayer for your own heart. As you read this first petition, the Holy Spirit should do a work in every believer here in showing us how puny our aspirations for God's name to be hallowed really are. So it's a prayer. This is a prayer for restored sanity. Restored sanity. This prayer comes before anything else in prayer. Now, granted, if you read most prayers in the Bible, they don't begin with hallowed be your name. But the assumption is there. You are approaching the one whose name is hallowed, and that's why you come to him. This is the first petition of this prayer. It holds all other aspects of this prayer together. It begins here. Now, the name of God represents who he is. It represents all that he is. And we've seen that the central name that he wants to be known is Yahweh, the Lord. Uh, He tells Moses, this is my name forever. This is the name I want to be known throughout all generations. But that one name brings with it a whole lot of information about who he is. And so... You can see in other places like he is Yahweh Jireh, the Lord who will provide. He is Yahweh Shema, the Lord uh, who is there. He is Yahweh Shalom, the Lord who is our peace. So all of these names are extrapolations on the name. The name reveals who God is. So for example, when the angel of the Lord came to Samson, his father, before Samson was conceived, Manoah, and he told him that his barren wife would bear a child. Manoah said in Judges 13 to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? Now, I believe this angel of the Lord is the second person of the Godhead. I believe this is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Son of God. He is the sent one in the Godhead. What is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? Isn't that interesting? I want to know your name so that I can honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. And so you see here in that encounter that the name is too great for us to even fully comprehend. It is wonderful. And so when... Jesus teaches us to hallow be the name of God. Reminds us that God's purpose for us is bigger than us. It's the reason you have been given life and breath. We are called to be ambassadors for the name. For his reputation. So that the world may worship this God. So that the world may exalt in this God. So that the world may live for this God. And we lose our bearings. And you know this individually, but you can can see it in the culture. We lose our bearings when we have no bigger vision for our lives than the concern of our own self-centered kingdoms. 
It brings destruction to our personal lives and even to our families and to the culture. But that's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came, to save us from this. As our substitute, and remember, you can't read any passage in Luke without reading the end. You have to read it in light of the end. Luke is establishing why you need a Messiah who will be crucified and raised from the grave. You can't read any narrative in Luke without understanding the point of the narrative is to take us to the cross and the resurrection. The reason Jesus Christ came is to save us from the antithesis of what this prayer teaches, living for our name rather than God's name. So on the night before the cross, Jesus, in what is known as the high priestly prayer, prayed this in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. On his mind, as he's about to go to the cross, is the glory of the father. And he says, I glorified you on earth. I glorified you on earth. I have manifested your name. Verse 6, and he did so with perfection. He reflected in total what the scripture teaches us about living with a God-centricity. You know, many people believe, many churches, maybe most churches are professing churches, they teach that God is fundamentally man-centered. In other words, the highest good is God making much of us. Some of the largest ministries on television, that's what they teach. However, if God's priority isn't first and foremost his own name, then him making much of us isn't going to do us much good. Let me prove my point. It may surprise you that... Over 200 times in the Bible, the Bible says that God does something for his namesake. And so every time you see God do something for his namesake, it benefits his image bearers. In Ezekiel, 68 to 69 times, God does something so that we would know that he is Lord. But just here, just a couple of these examples. You know these verses. Psalm 23, verse 3, he restores my soul. If you're saved today, it's because your soul has been restored. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see that? The reason your soul is restored and the reason he leads you in paths of righteousness is because he's jealous for his name and it benefits you. How about 1 Samuel 12, verse 22? The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Just one more example. There's over 200. I figured that'd make you mad if I gave you all 200. I am writing to you, 1 John 2, little children, because your sins are forgiven. For his name's sake. It benefits his image bearers because God is jealous for his name. 
And you say, well, that seems self-serving. Well, let me just think about this. He is the highest of all beings. If he were to glory in any other name, it would be idolatry on the part of God. I want you to keep this in mind, though. And this is so important. This is the difference between law and gospel. God doesn't save you because you're jealous for his name. He has to save you because you're not jealous for his name. That's good news because there's no one in here that is fully jealous for his name. Not in the sense that the scripture teaches. He saves us because Jesus, our substitute, is jealous for his name. And out of jealousy for God's name, he fulfilled all righteousness for every believer. In other words, in your place, he stood hallowing the name of God in his earthly life. And then he went to the cross and he was crushed because you hallow your name rather than his name. And then he was raised for our justification. So that when God the Father looked at the Son, it was as if he had lived our life of self-exaltation. And when he looks at us, it's as if we had lived his life of hallowing the name of God. That's why we need justifying. We are not naturally jealous for the name of God. We're jealous for our names. But now in Jesus, in Christ, we're united to Christ by faith. And by the work of the Spirit, he begins to work that jealousy in us for his name. It's not the ground of our salvation. It's the fruit of our salvation. In other words, he begins to work sanity in us. And one of the means he does that is by this prayer. May it be so. And this brings us to the second petition that we're going to look at this morning. This, the last petition for the morning. When our jealousy for God's name grows. Again, it's not the ground of our salvation. The ground of our salvation is Jesus' substitutionary work for us. But now the fruit of that is that we're going to see it grow in us. The content and the burdens of our prayers will change necessarily. That's why the order of this prayer matters. Um, we saw that this past week. As we listened to these missionaries, we began every uh, service with them sharing a testimony and how we could pray for them. Their prayer concerns are different than most of our prayer concerns. They don't get caught up into things that we get caught up in. We have first world problems. Uh, one, one of the uh, missionaries, he, he's from the Netherlands. His first language is Dutch, but he speaks better English than I do. And he, he's fluent in Greek and Hebrew, and he's learned... He's working in six tribal languages right now. He's learned them fluently. And now he's, 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 in, he's translating the Bible from the Greek and Hebrew into these tribal languages. And his greatest burden, I mean, he obviously had prayers and concerns for his family. He said, 
I've spent years on this one translation, on this one uh, translation of the Bible. And when I presented it to the people, they weren't, they weren't excited about it. They, they didn't want to read it. Would you please pray that God would give them an insatiable hunger for his word? You see, this man has given his life away for the name of God. And it's changed, it's transformed the content of his prayers and the burdens of his prayers. That brings us to the second petition. Kingdom prayer is a jealous prayer. But out of that jealousy, kingdom prayer becomes a missional prayer. Look with me in the second part. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Missional prayer because it's animated by zeal for God's name. Your kingdom come. The kingdom, that word occurs 162 times in the New Testament. You think that's a central theme? Of course, the reason for this stress, this emphasis on the kingdom of God in the New Testament is because the hope of the kingdom of God was at the heart of the message of the Old Testament, even though that phrase is never seen in the Old Testament. The burden of the Old Testament was that the kingdom of God would come. So let's talk about the meaning of the kingdom. Let me give you a definition I think would help you. I, I remember being in uh, Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and I was preaching, I was doing an interim there at a church there. And, and so the, the deacons and, and some of the Sunday school teachers gathered with me to pray before the service. And someone asked one of the teachers, what are you teaching on today? And, and, and he said, I'm teaching on the kingdom of God. And they said, what is the kingdom of God? He said, I have no earthly idea. I went, ooh, and you're teaching on it. Well, the reality is it's found, as I said, 162 times. We need to know what the kingdom of God is. Jesus came preaching the kingdom. So let me give you this definition. The kingdom of God, and I don't have it on the screen. I, I added this later before I, after I submitted these notes. The kingdom of God is where the Father's rule, his reign, is expressed through the Son of God, by the Spirit of God, so that it is gladly obeyed, gloriously displayed, and gratefully enjoyed by those who have been redeemed by the Son of God for the name of God. Let me repeat that. The kingdom of God is the rule of God expressed, or you could say exercised by the Son of God in the Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit of God, so that it is gladly obeyed, so this is not out of compulsion, gloriously displayed, the church displays the kingdom, and gratefully enjoyed. We enjoy the kingdom among those who have been redeemed by the Son for the name of God. That, that's, the, that's the kingdom of God. 
It's the rule of God expressed through the Son of God, in short. Now, there are four points, I think, that, that really capture what the Scripture teaches about the kingdom of God. That kind of gives you the storyline of the Bible. So let me just work through this briefly. We're, just, we're speaking here at a, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of, uh, instead of scuba diving here, we're just, we're, we're just going to uh, uh, maybe ski a little bit. So we're not going to get real deep here. First of all, Scripture starts with the assertion that God, as creator, is the sovereign ruler over the universe. He is the sovereign king, sovereign ruler, whether you recognize it or not. This God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. You may be an atheist. He still rules over you. We see that with pagan kings in the Bible. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and he is presently the sovereign ruler and Lord over the universe. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens... And his kingdom rules over all. All means all. His kingdom rules over every nook and cranny of the universe. Over every tribe and tongue. There's a sovereign rule by God. So it's clear that when Jesus calls us to pray, your kingdom come. He isn't referring to God's sovereign reign. Because God is already sovereign. His sovereign reign is already universal. This clearly refers to something new. Something brought on by sin. Let me bring us to the second movement to understand what it means, the kingdom of God. So even though God is universal Lord, after the fall, something changes. His sovereignty doesn't change, but something changes. Now, in light of sin, in light of guilt and corruption, which is true of all of us, God's rightful rule over creation is rejected. It's rejected. We now stand under the judgment of God. That's what's changed. Is he still sovereign? Absolutely. He's no less sovereign after the fall than he was before the fall. But that's the change. Rather than recognizing his rule and reign, you exchange the truth about God for a lie. That is your natural condition. Third, it's at this point, the Old Testament makes a distinction between his sovereign reign and his saving reign. His sovereign reign is comprehensive, but now he is going to establish a saving reign through a Messiah where he makes all things new, where he fixes the broken things. This becomes the storyline of the Bible. You never get past this story. Throughout the, the Old Testament, we see the promises of this saving reign, which are announced by Moses and by the prophets. And we learn in time that the one who will affect this saving reign will come, yes, from Abraham. But he will come from a son of Abraham, a far-off son, David. 
Isaiah 9. This is a passage we celebrate at Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. What government? God's government. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, of the increase of his government and of peace. That is shalom. There will be no end. It's it's going to be a government that is exercised over every aspect of this creation. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And get this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, will do this. Zeal, jealousy for his own name. So the hope of the kingdom of God involved the dual hope of God's saving reign and David's reign through one person, the Messiah. And that brings us to the fourth aspect of this movement. And that is the New Testament announces that in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that kingdom has come. The kingdom that will crush the serpent's head. The kingdom that will be the final death blow to sin and death and to the devil and to sorrow through his doing, through his dying, through his rising, through his ruling, the kingdom would erupt into this broken world. However, even though the New Testament stresses the presence of the kingdom, there's a not yet aspect to it that awaits his second coming. And that's why Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come where you will consummate what you've already inaugurated through the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to the means of the kingdom. We're coming to the close here. So that's the meaning of the kingdom. What is the means of the kingdom? Well, keep in mind, the kingdom of God is not brought about by us. Praise the Lord for that. It would have died a long time ago. It is affected by the triune God alone. And yet, he has chosen since Genesis 1 to employ human means. And so we are his agents by which he brings this kingdom to bear. In other words, a kingdom that's one day going to be universal in scope, the saving reign of God through the Son of God is not yet universal in scope. That's where we come in. God's people on God's mission for God's name. That's our role. Every person's here's role. May not be that you're called to international missions as a full-time missionary, but that is our role. This mission implies two things. Being sent or sending and being given a task. And so we're sent out into the world with a kingdom task. And what's the task? It begins with prayer. It begins with prayer. That's why we have prayer week. It begins with prayer. That God's name would be hallowed. 
and that the kingdom of God would come. And in prayer, we bring that gospel to bear. But it begins with prayer. Just consider this as we close. Paul is writing from from jail. He's writing to the Colossian believers. And here's what he prays. Remarkable prayer. Colossians 4.3. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. That's another way of praying. Pray that the kingdom of God would come through our ministry. I mean, that an apostle would ask ordinary Christians like the Colossian believers, who haven't been Christians long, by the way. Many of you have been Christians much longer than any of the Colossian believers. But that he would ask ordinary Christians to pray for his evangelistic and missional success, I think is stunning. He's not trusting in his education, and it was immense. He's not trusting in his understanding, his knowledge of the Old Testament. It was immense. He needed prayer. This is missional prayer. So in missional prayer, we pray for providence, for God to open up doors. We pray for power when those doors are open, for the gospel to come to bear. We pray for provision for laborers. Ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. Keep in mind, to pray like this requires jealousy for his name. If you aren't jealous for your name, you're not going to pray like this. The order of this prayer matters. And then we pray for the preparation of hearts. We pray that God would prepare hearts to receive this gospel. So let me close with this question. And then we're going to go into our time of the Lord's Supper. This is a question that was first posed to me in a book by Paul Miller, The Praying Life. If you haven't read The Praying Life, that's one of the great books on prayer. And here's the question he asked in that prayer that just ripped me up. It really had a transformative effect on me. If God answered all your prayers from the last 30 days, Would it impact the kingdom more or your own personal kingdom? That's a question. Would progress have been made in the kingdom of God or simply in your own personal kingdom? I don't like the answer to that question, if I'm honest. And that's why we pray this prayer, Father, Hallowed be your name in my heart so that I can pray like this. In the meantime, thank you that I have a Savior that covers me because I don't have that zeal for your name as I should. Now, one of the means by which God's dominion is restored in our hearts is the table. God uses means, and and so the Lord's table is one of the means by which his rule, his dominion is restored in our selfish and sinful hearts. And so we're going to come to the table here, and we want to ask the Lord. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, 
We want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.